eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. It is often at our darkest moments that we humans assemble our hopes for brighter days and imagine a more compassionate and sustainable future. Our guest today draws on research from anthropology, biology, history, and psychology, and introduces us to a utopia where money is no longer king, joy is central, life's necessities are universally guaranteed, work is optional, learning is pleasurable, nation states are dismantled, and media is a means of promoting equality in community instead of feeding the cult of celebrity. He not only offers policy points from which to begin the discussion of how such measures could be achieved, but invites each of us to join him in creating a future we might wish for our children. Thank you so much, Martin Shanehalls, for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Great to be with you, Charlie. Well, Martin's new book is Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined. Martin is an anthropologist on the faculty of Appalachian State University. He has previously taught at Columbia University, Johns Hopkins University, and the University of Pennsylvania, my sister's alma mater, a good one, and is the author of The Paradox of Power and Intimate Exclusion. Well, utopia is a misunderstood and often maligned idea in our culture here in the U.S. It guides your work and finds a place right there in your book's title. So talk about why you took the risk and led with that right away, utopia. Yes. So it is a risk because I know that lots of listeners uh, will have a negative connotation associated with the word utopia. But I really wanted to use the word and reclaim the optimism that can and should go with the word. It's it's telling to me that we really don't have a way of describing a society that can be alternative to the one that we have other than the word utopia. And it's also telling that we have a negative connotation associated with it. Um, and so what I wanted to do with the book was put forward ideas that were hopeful, but also very practical and backed up by social science research. Well, Martin, you start with an unexpected premise that joy and pleasure should be the metrics by which all human endeavor is measured. So how do you respond to the criticisms that joy and pleasure, while important, are still not really the way to measure how societies function? The way I respond to it is, first of all, to say that Joy and pleasure evolved in animals in order to encourage adaptive behavior. And in humans, they encourage adaptive behavior not only for ourselves, but for other people. Um, One of the things that humans have a real capacity for doing is helping other humans and feeling joy and pleasure in doing that. So the word pleasure, the word and concept joy, especially the word pleasure that has a negative connotation Um, just like the word utopia, needs to be reclaimed and needs to be put back in context. Pleasure is the kind of cement that helps bind people together in very pro-social and optimistic ways. Well, like love, for instance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think Part of the aversion to using the word in the concept of pleasure is the puritanical tradition in American culture. The Puritans um, denigrated pleasure and held up work, but held up work only as long as it was a kind of sacrifice and an ascetic enterprise. And um, 
I want to challenge that notion because it's very counterintuitive. If we want to, as humans, um, feel happiness, then we can and should feel pleasure. And we need to talk about that. Well, Martin, your research suggests that the arrangement most confounding to human happiness is hierarchy. That's the ranking of people and groups according to status or authority. Isn't hierarchy just hardwired into who we are as people? No, it's not hardwired at at all. In fact, um, well, let me just reinforce what you just said, and then I'll give you the hardwired answer um, or the answer that rebuts the idea that it's hardwired. Hierarchy creates anxiety, and anxiety, as all of us know, when we get tense, when we get nervous, it's one of the most uh, toxic things that counteracts our ability to enjoy something. And so hierarchy needs to be challenged. And it turns out if you actually look at anthropological evidence, going back 200,000 years when humans first evolved in Africa, all the way up until about 6,000 years ago, we lived a non-hierarchical life. So what that means is that for 95% of human existence on Earth, we lived as sharing, cooperative, and egalitarian um, animals as a, as a species. And it's only within the last approximately 6,000 years that hierarchy arose. So we've done it before. This is a fact. I know it sounds kind of fanciful. Some of my friends challenged me, but I'm not describing something that is imagined. It's a fact that humans have lived most of our existence as egalitarians, not as a hierarchical species. You begin your exploration of utopia with a look at human emotions such as envy and shame. Talk about the place that they have in a discussion of a better society, Martin. Well, envy and shame are tricky emotions. Um, Let me take shame in particular. It probably arose to encourage humans to be attentive to others and not be too indulgent in ourselves, and that's the role that it sometimes plays in current society. And that's a good thing because that attentiveness to others' needs, that um, feeling that if we eat all the food that we should be embarrassed or if we take everything that we should be embarrassed and feel shame, that has a, a positive effect on humans. However, the other part of shame is that it divides our personas into a kind of public self and a private self one that we put forward, and one that we usually keep hidden from other people. And I don't have to tell anyone how detrimental that can be, especially when those two selves are very different. And so what I want to do is think about ways to reduce shame and in its place substitute compassion. Compassion is also a very pro-social emotion, and it's one that probably is unique to humans as a species. So there are ways that we can promote compassion and have it take the place of shame with its kind of dividing of our psychic selves. Well, that hierarchical systems today bring about anxiety and other negative feelings among those at the very top and at the very bottom and everybody in the middle, it seems. You say it's evidence that that hierarchies really run contrary to human happiness. So talk more about that, Martin. This is a really important point. We're used to thinking of hierarchy as being damaging to those who are on the lowest rungs of society. So, for example, the poor, um, 
for those who have low status. And it is absolutely devastating to the poor and those with low status. But what I wanted to show is that we all pay a price for um, hierarchy, including those in the middle and at the top. So what that means is that we have to change hierarchy because all of us suffer, not just the people at the bottom. All of us suffer because of the hierarchical nature of society. Um, and so I showed that by using evidence from um, bi biological research and by using evidence from evolution to show that hierarchy, um, although we think sometimes that it makes us feel better, it's a kind of illusory feeling. I like, I like to think of uh, hierarchy as a kind of, and, and I think it really is, a kind of addiction. The desire for more and more money, especially among those who already have more than they could ever spend, um, is a classic addictive behavior. They're never satisfied. People who have a huge amount of money are never satisfied with what they have. They always crave more, and that's exactly what happens in a classic addiction. And they are willing to do almost anything to get more money and more power. That's a sign of addiction, not a sign of pleasure. Well, learning in Utopia and today's schooling bear little resemblance to one another. And uh, once again, we've got this idea of hierarchy, removing that, being non-hierarchical, joyful, voluntary, no grades, uh, collaborative, which we've touched on. So talk about why they're so different. They're, of course, really different. And as you read that off, it all sounds great to me, but I also can hear the responses of some people who will say, well, you know, if you don't grade, if you don't have hierarchy, students won't learn. But that's not true. One of the things that's um, a strength of humans, in fact, probably our greatest strength, is our capacity and our desire to learn. Babies don't have to be bribed in some way to learn or explore their environment. They do it out of a sense of curiosity. And unfortunately, in so many cases, school, by making anxiety, by putting forth grades, and by saying that the purpose of school is something remote from school, namely getting a job and being prepared for adult life, rather than the pleasures of learning, we turn learning into a burden, the same way that we turn work into a burden. And I think that's absolutely a, a, a tragedy. We make students feel that there's no uh, intrinsic purpose to schooling, as in fact there should be. Um, one of the things that I like to think of students doing is that they can and should learn about society by acting upon it. So in Utopia, I don't imagine that it'll be a perfect society. Um, I, as more and more of us age, perhaps uh, young people in their schooling will do a study of older people and what makes older people happy, what makes them sad, and hopefully will propose solutions which they will then implement. The idea here is to give a genuine purpose to education rather than a kind of spurious purpose the way uh, that things are constructed today. Yeah, I've often said that the the idea of really imparting critical thinking into uh, kids as they're learning is much more important than remembering and memorizing all sorts of things for a, uh, a standardized test. Absolutely. Absolutely. I fully agree with you. And um, I know, having been a professor for so many years, 
that that's what's really important for students, the critical learning and critical thinking, and also the, the joy that can come with that. If we construct school as work, and we often do, just calling school work homework, we give it all of the negative connotations of work, of, of an obligation, of something that they expect to be um, painful, and also something that they expect um, will be painful. And if it's not painful, they think that they're not learning something. And that's also a real problem, too. We need to rethink schooling. And that's why I'm putting forth what um, I know for some listeners will be a provocative idea, namely that school should be non-obligatory in order that it can become enjoyable. To my mind, the most important way to measure the uh, success of a schooling system is whether kids are happy. Well, the dichotomy between work and play is a false one, you believe, and will not really exist in utopia. Why is that, Martin? Because that's a, a dichotomy that we create by giving a kind of moral supremacy to work and, and also to school. Um, and we give it a moral supremacy in large part because we say, well, work and school are ascetic enterprises, they're, and they're therefore virtuous. And play is something that's pleasurable, it's non-obligatory, and therefore um, it's fun, but of course it's supposed to be guilt-inducing. And that too pulls us in so many directions. We want to study um, hard, but we, want, but we end up doing that um, with a sense of obligation. We want to play, but we end up feeling guilty if we do. There's no reason that we have to be divided in that way. And if we make school and work into the kind of pleasures that they should be and remove the sense of coercion from them, then there, we can eliminate that kind of division that exists in ourselves and in society between play and work. Play, of course, is a great way to learn. And so play should infuse learning systems and work as well. Well, you write that we take some features of our lives so for granted that we can't really even imagine life without them. And money is perhaps one of those at the top of the list, yet you argue that with all basic necessities guaranteed, money as we know it will cease to exist in utopia. And I've often said to people with all this automation taking over many, many jobs, we're going to see a future where money is going to be a very different thing, if not completely done away with anyway. So how will all this work? Yes. So you're absolutely right about automation. And I don't know why more people don't discuss this. Um, we are facing uh, in the n near future a time when so much work will be done through automation and through in increased efficiency. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing. That can be a great thing. If most of the drudge work is done um, through automation, that gives us time to engage in creative enterprises. And um, so my plan is that all humans will be guaranteed the basic necessities of subsistence, not because they work, but because they're human. We can do this, there's plenty of food to go around, and I show very carefully in the book um, the fact that there's more than enough food uh, production capacity, even with um, taking into account the necessity to produce food with a, a smaller carbon footprint, even taking account the largest productions 
of an increase in population. And so the point is that we will get, we will not work because we have to in order to survive. We will work because we want to. And that then will lead to an elimination of money as a kind of currency because if I can use the word, the, the only currency will be um, pleasure. That you will do things because of pleasure, you will do them for other people because of pleasure, and they will do them for you because of pleasure. It's so intuitive to me to talk about this, and yet we never do, because we all know that we work really hard at something when we like it. And we also know that there are all kinds of things that people do, unpaid labor, volunteer labor, parenting, family relationships. None of those things are paid, and because they're not paid today, they're devalued. And that's one of the real evils of money, that it creates a set of actions which are valuable because they're paid and a set of actions of quote-unquote amateurs that are devalued because they're not paid. That shouldn't be the case. Well, while some media outlets are distorting with the intention of dividing us, you're imagining the use of things like the you know, the old-timey TV <laughs> mm-hmm. and the internet to actually connect all of us together and be more compassionate and telling the stories that are the positive things in the world. So what difference do you think that could make? I think it can make a huge difference because um, just what we were talking about here, it by focusing exclusively on negative stories, we get a distorted image of the way that humans are. And I don't want to be Pollyannish and say that we can only tell um, positive stories, but there are so many wonderful small acts of kindness that humans indulge in And um, those don't get reported enough. And therefore, we come away with an idea that humans are really terrible, nasty, and brutish, and um, nothing will change. If we talk about the positive things that humans do, and the other thing I want to do is to change the emphasis on a kind of celebrity media. Today, we pay attention to a few people at the top, a few people in power, um, and neglect the rest of us. I want the media to tell the stories of all of us, of average individuals, because everyone's worthy of attention. And if we redistribute that attention to all people, it will help connect us in really robust and humane ways. Well, sharing and equality are cornerstones of a utopian society, and and they're a lot easier to maintain in smaller settings. So how large can utopia be and still retain its egalitarian qualities? I mean, the United States is quite large. It is quite large. And um, that question is one that I thought about for a long time. Is it the case that we can only live in small scale societies? We know that the humans who did live that way in the past, who I referenced previously, were living in small groups. What I imagine is a kind of hybrid situation. So that we'll live in small groups. The small groups will have very genuine and organic connections to other groups around the world so that they'll Um, let's say that we're in a kind of work group working on some creative project that's meaningful. We'll have an audience for that um, project, but we will also travel to other places to exchange our kind of experiences with other work groups. And that will lead to genuine and real connections between small groups of people rather than the the, um, symbolic connections that exist today that unite us in a, in a very 
um, tenuous way with other people in America who we don't even know. The idea of the nation state is a really potent and also toxic one because we really don't know all of the people in that community. Um, we only know a tiny number of people. And so our allegiance to it becomes um, inorganic and oftentimes very dangerous. I want an organic relationship between people both in a small group and between small groups across large distances. Martin, independence is a central feature of the American character and spirit. Talk about what it would take to encourage us to accept the importance of collaboration and sharing as the basis of our very own happiness. Yes. Well, um, the ideas that I'm proposing here don't have to be totally opposed to individualism. Um, I'm not mandating that everyone work in a group. I'm not mandating that people stay in a particular group if they're not happy. But we know that humans are very sociable, and we know that we like to interact with other people. And one of the reasons that people sometimes retreat is because they've been damaged by the toxic nature of groups. They've been outcast or they've been ashamed and humiliated in various ways. I know that all sounds really kind of dark, but it's often very true. And with a changed society, the group can be much more um, positive, a much more positive experience for everyone. And with that, it will attract a great, greater number of people and negate the, the negative consequences of individualism that exist today in America. Martin Shane Halls is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The new book is Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined. Thank you so much for being here today on Conversations. Thanks for having me, Charlie. I'd like to know what you think of Conversations. Write me an email to charlie.dyer at iHubRadio.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Charlie Dyer. Charlie Dyer.